Thank you. Please sit down. You guys should sit down. Okay. Look at this. There's. Uh, I wonder, just out of curiosity, uh, are you guys going to be snapping photos at that rate for the entire entire time? Is just uh, just one. Oh, you got five minutes, so I'm probably spoiling things. Maybe would you like us to be serious-minded for a second and then uh, uh, jovial, so you can get like a sense of what it was like with all these questions? No. Um. <laughs> Meanwhile, the minutes are ticking by. I know. You guys can't have, see this. We have a limited time. We have 55 why, why, minutes. Why, why, and why don't we begin seconds? and let sure. let them um, snap away? So. Why don't we begin, but why don't we begin at the beginning, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, let's, got it? I emerged um, from the womb. <laughs> that was the beginning. <laughs> let's flash forward a couple of years, maybe a couple of years from there. I'm, I'm curious, uh, I know that uh, you were part of a Montreal children's theater group when you were- Good young. Lord, man, yeah. I, I, you You've know, been doing your homework. I did a little bit of homework, yeah, a little bit of yeah. homework. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about, like, what in the early, do you remember uh, the first draw to being creative, to being a storyteller that you had as a child in those years? Or did your mom make you go to the Montreal Children's Theater? Uh, well, the, uh, I went to a summer camp from time to time, a city boy in Montreal, and there was a camp at a um, at a farmer's uh, uh, place, so in the at the farm there was like a summer camp, uh, and um, those uh, those farms were like in the country, the Laurentian Mountains, and all. They were habitant uh, camps. The French uh, Canadians uh, were. Il parle français comme ça là, and uh, and there the, the when they spoke English the the French accent was uh, was very uh, I speak uh, uh, English you know, uh, and it was very like and, and and when they had a slaughter a pig they the pig would be picked up by its hind legs and they'd cut the throat and they'd catch the blood and would make blood pudding from the blood. I mean, it's all stuff that we don't hear about now, but farms do that. And they were, those farms back then were very, uh, they sustained themselves in life. So this camp in that milieu was kind of basic. But, and so they would, uh, they had me boxing. I was six or seven years old. But then we put on a play and the play was very meaningful in some ways. And I made the audience cry because they, some of the words they gave me to speak. And I thought, my God, look at that. They're crying. And then my father was there because uh, it was like a Sunday when they picked the kids up from camp. My father helped me out. My boy, Bill. I thought, wait a minute. I made the audience cry. My father's giving me love. I like this. <laughs> I think I'll do it again. And that was beginning of a career. So 
the way you spoke about your father there, saying, "Oh, this is my father giving me love." Was 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 your father more distanced? And and as you continued this, yeah, you're man. listening to the words and even <laughs> and how you say them. That's yes. re- it's really a good interviewer. Uh, uh, so yeah, well, tell me about your dad, your relationship with your father, right. and did he so like I, acting? I can pick you up, and you're gonna. Uh, yeah, no, my father. You know, Shatner is a German German name, and. Uh, I don't know about uh, now, but, you know, Europeans. My father came over to this country when he was to Canada when he was 12, 13, struggled, brought uh, all his sisters and brothers from Germany over here, over to Montreal. And um, so he worked very hard. He was very serious and uh, expressed love not by saying I love you, but by working hard and providing for you showing that he loved you. So he loved me, but it wasn't a lot of emotional. So when he picked me up and said, my boy Bill, I said, that'll make a great song. So you studied yeah. you studied economics in school. Um, and uh, uh, University, I uh, didn't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't dare. I, uh, it, was a, it was a career that... Uh, what's the phrase? Uh, I dare not speak, you know, uh, until later in the university. So what am I going to study? Um, my father said, why don't you study economics? Mm. And, okay, I'll study economics. But I never went to economic class. I, <laughs> well, I was the worst student that ever went to McGill University. No, that, I mean, you know, it sounds casual. I was, I was the worst student that ever went to McGill University. I mean, I got like just above failing marks, uh, so I was able to stagger through to the next next uh, year, and I graduated. But I graduated instead of graduating in June, I graduated in September because I had to make up some economic class or something or that. No, I was terrible. But what I did do at McGill was the college musicals. Wrote, directed, acted in them, the college radio, college theater. And I was performing on stage uh, all the time, uh, one way or another, and very rarely went to class. Mostly I stole uh, notes uh, from my uh, fellow students. And, well, I mean, what, what was that class about? And I'd read that and stagger through some test of some kind. Did you gravitate? Uh, you said you did uh, your writing, directing, acting all throughout that period. Did you start to gravitate towards acting, or did you find that that was maybe the the, the easier path to get a foothold uh, coming out of college? No, I I was always an actor, and uh, and uh, you know I was looking for the name for the longest time. For some reason, I've just remembered her name. Why? Is you know why why speaking to you? Do I remember Ruth Springford? Uh, did, who you, was, did you wear a lot of blue? Maybe uh, is it blue? Is it blue? Yeah, maybe it's like my some rod or Cohen in my eye uh, has reminded me Ruth Springford. Uh, so she directed a number of plays, amateur plays that I was in, and then the fateful thing was. Upon graduation at, at uh, McGill, uh, she was running a summer theater. McGill, uh, uh, Montreal is built around a uh, extinct volcano. 
So in the center, in the caldera, uh, is a park. And part of that park, Ruth Springford made a summer theater, did a summer theater. And I said to her, can I be in your summer theater? She said, no, I got the company all fit. But, but we do have an opening for a uh, assistant uh, manager of the theater. I said, well, I got this degree. <laughs> so she said, oh, great. And then I proceeded to be the worst manager that ever was in a theater. No, no, I really, I, I really, you know, as bad a student as I was, I was the worst manager. <laughs> but she said, well, uh, I guess you could be in the acting company. And the same thing happened after the summer theater was over. Uh, there was uh, in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, a professional theater. And I think maybe the only one in Canada at that time, the Canadian Repertory Theater, the CRT. And so she was instrumental in that. And I said, can I go there? And she said, well, all right, you can be the assistant manager there. <laughs> I don't know why. I lost tickets, lost money. And um, she made me a member of the acting company. I was there for three years. And um, maybe a, a little bit further than that, um, you uh, were an understudy for a very famous actor, uh, Christopher Plummer, in 1957. Um, and what was the transition from going to that community-level theater to being an... Well, it wasn't a community... Uh, it wasn't a community... Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 it was forgive me, sir. Forgive me, sir. Forgive me, sir. Forgive me, sir. Professional theater. <laughs> Not a very good one, but it was a professional <laughs> theater. Um, <laughs> so, uh, during those three years, uh, somebody came up to me and said, uh, we're going to start a classical company. Because uh, right... Uh, near, not far from Ottawa, uh, there was a town called Stratford, Ontario. And they're going to, we're going to start a class. I said, no, I got to go to the summer theater. So I turned it down first year. And then they were a huge success. So I said, hey, I'll go. And uh, second year I went and I was a member of the Stratford Shakespeare Company for three years. During which time <clears throat> we did a lot of plays and I we had some uh, wonderful roles, and uh, understudied uh, Christopher Plummer, who was this wonderful actor, also from Montreal. He was uh, a year or two older than I, so he was like a little bit ahead. He had gone to the CRT, uh, so I like followed him along, and there I was at Stratford, and he was playing uh, Henry V, which is one of the larger roles in English language. You nodded your head there like you knew. Oh, no, I've read that. I've, I've read it. Yeah, you've read it. You know. But I didn't see the Christopher Plummer performance. No, so but you uh, knew that it was one of the large... King Henry was, was one of the larger... I, I don't like the turn you're taking it. It seems very accusatory to me. Just a gentle nod. I think you should keep your eye on I'm the prize get, out there. I, I'm just trying to get you involved in this monologue that I'm doing. <laughs> So, uh, Chris Plummer, uh, who had become an acquaintance, uh, was playing uh, King Henry, uh, Henry of this play, uh, which is all about uh, uh, Henry. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, the director... Um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know all this other stuff. You can't... Uh, 
uh, the, he he did have theater the, the theater in um, in um, that city. Um, <laughs> anyway, a, a famous English director. I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, and uh, uh, he said, "You got to understudy the the role." And uh, God, I got to understudy the role. So it was repertory theater. So it meant that you would do a play. Uh, you, you'd re- we rehearse a play in the uh, before we opened the theater officially for a month or so. Then we opened that play, and then being a repertory theater, you would immediately start rehearsals on another play. So a month later, you'd open the second play, and then the third play, and then they would have understudy rehearsals after all that. So in the first week of opening uh, uh, the Shakespeare play that I was understudying, uh, Chris Plummer got ill, and I had to... They, they came to me and said, can you go on? And I said, yes. I didn't know the names of the actors. I didn't know where to walk. What I did know, though, was the muse, the actor's muse, had been on my shoulder. And the actor's muse said to me, learn the words. So although the rehearsals, this understudy rehearsals were months away, and I had like a, a cell of a room, like it was a room, like it had a bed like this, and I'd go back and forth, and I'd learn the words, once more unto the preach, dear friends, once more. And then when I came to the large, like the large, the, I'd, I'd go to the toilet, and I'd sit on the toilet and I'd flush the toilet. Once more under the breach, dear f- <laughs> And so I, I went on. I didn't know where to go. Uh, Chris later said, I knew he was going to be successful because everywhere I stood, he sat. And everywhere I sat, he stood. He didn't know or didn't realize I didn't know where I was going. So if I got tired, I'd sat down, you know. And then when I thought I should get up, I'd get up. <laughs> and then, and then the actors muse. So then it's full of story. The play was written for Queen Elizabeth I by Shakespeare, full of storm and drung and lots of patriotic speeches. And, uh, and, and finally, the, 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 the whole thing ends, and the coda of the play is with the French princess. And it's like a romantic comedy for a few moments. When I got to the end of all that stuff, I, thought, I must have thought, you know, God, I, I've done it. And now I only had a few pages left with the French princess. And I couldn't remember the next word. <laughs> I'm in front of 2,600 people all surrounding I can't remember a word. So the guy over here playing my role, the brother of King Henry, 
I remember he knew. He had like a photographic memory in rehearsal. When somebody would go up, he'd, he'd know the words. He knows the words. <laughs> so I went over to him, to my brother, you know, and I said, Charlie, what do I say? <laughs> and he had long blonde eyelashes. And he went, I said, what? He said, what the hell is that? And I walked over here thinking, I'm lost. And the words came to me. The muse was there. And I finished the play. Amazing. And, and it was like the first week. So the critics were still there. I mean, this was a big deal in Canada. And the critics wrote very nice things about what I did. Very nice. Very nice. Are you still, are you still friends with uh, Christopher? Were you still friends? I, I uh, am yeah. still friends with Chris. He's dead. Yes, and I'm going to die. <laughs> I tried to correct it mid-stride, didn't really work, but... <laughs> hey, um, uh, since I'm feeling self-conscious, I want to tell you're you... So you're feeling what? Um, I, there's something that Americans do, and by Americans, I mean people from the United States. We that collect, Canadians don't do? They, they, they collect, they just, just, like, you have been working in the United States for so long, and yes. you're a, a part of a, you, American, United States pop culture. Yes. We just embrace you as an American. Not you are too very closely now. <laughs> but you are a distinctly Canadian human being. Like, How's that, how do you, how, how does that manifest it? Hmm. I think you've 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 doled out some of the boots from your. From I your... do do boots, <laughs> but I kept trying to get the boots out. Okay, I'm a boot. I'm a boot. I studied. I mean, I about about about, and then and then I went I went to a, a, a shoemaker. My shoes were needed resoling, mm -hmm. and I handed him my shoes, and he said. You're Canadian, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, you know how I know? I said, yes, I know how you know. And I say a boot. He said, no, it's your shoes. They're stamped made in Canada. <laughs> I got all this old material just trotting it out. <laughs> well, do you... Um it, it, it's a very important part of your formative years, is all I was saying. But uh, and do you do you do you um, still have? Do you spend time in Canada? Do you have family in Canada? I have two sisters in Montreal, yeah. and I go there on occasion, yeah. but not not often enough. Canada is a great country. Yes. No, it's a great it's a great country, and uh, I'm I still have my uh, Canadian passport. So every time I go back into the country, the Canadian guys at the border go, oh, my God, you're still Canadian. <laughs> still Canadian after all these years. <laughs> so um, I want to flash forward again because we're going to eventually get into um, something. Uh, something, yes. A fight? <laughs> Possibly. I'm, I'm game if you are. But uh, <laughs> um, Scene rolling around the stage at South by Southwest. You never would have guessed right. what happened next. <laughs> um, a, few, a few years ago, uh, we honored um, 
Roger Corman for, with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. And there was a, uh, a film you made with him um, uh, that is one of my favorite films. Really? Of his, yeah. Uh, Have I, you got good taste? I don't know. It's a questionable. Depends on you. Not according to my daughters or my wife or my immediate family. They think you have good taste. They, they, no. They're quite, they think quite you have contrary. bad taste. They don't trust you my opinions. You tell them from me yeah. that you have great taste. <laughs> and Thank especially you. in movies. Uh, oh, my gosh. I am definitely going to use that. It's not going to work. But... <laughs> Show them the movie you liked about well, that I did. What was the movie I did that you liked? Well, it, it was um, uh, the the film in uh, the. It's called The Intruder from 1962. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I've heard. Uh, Roger Corman talk about it, and it seemed like it was a pretty dicey affair. They weren't really. They, it was filmed with a lot of locals from a southern town. About Carol. you were a, Carol, a bit of a Carol jerk Illinois in the movie. Shot a lot, um, and uh, it's it's a, a wonderful portrait of um, the evils of of racism and somebody who was fighting segregation in schools at a time uh, shot in a town where the school was just segregated six months prior. Yeah, uh, that's true. So it was what. What did you say? I, I corrected my crappy language, so I said I said segregated instead of desegregated. But you know, whatever. Um, we understood what you meant. I think so. I didn't need to come you back. Know, in, no, no, right? you didn't need to correct because everybody's dazzled by the suit. <laughs> Thank you. So we did shoot that film, uh, if I remember correctly, Cairo, Illinois. We were pursued uh, or threatened by uh, three groups of uh, gangs. One was an all-black gang from the, uh, from the local jail, one was an all-white gang from the local jail, and one was a mixed gang from the local jail. Everybody was after us to kill us. I had, and we were, live, we were boarded in a motel, and I had an escape route. I was gonna dive out the bathroom window. You know, it's funny, but it was real. Dive out, the, and there was a cornfield there, and run into the cornfield and lie down mm. with all that corn. <laughs> and I would throw the ears of the corn at the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. oh, it was, we were, our lives were threatened making that movie. No question. So, um, Corman, uh, as a you know, fascinating creative figure, you know, uh, he was great what talent scout. Obviously, yeah. um, uh, were there were the things that you you were extraordinarily confident in that performance, and it's a, a confidence I think that continues on through several of your your. The only characters. thing I'm unsure of is talking to you. <laughs> well, I'm curious if, uh, um, you know, what you picked up from Corman for, uh, at that time in your life, because you're still I picked up the occasional actor. film, I got his coffee, yeah. <laughs> I picked up uh, a cold, he gave me a cold. Mm. I picked up various things, chewing gum. No, he, he was, he was, not an ins in my opinion, um, uh, my experience with him, he wasn't an insightful director. He didn't say, why don't you try when maybe this or maybe that. Especially that film in which we were guerrilla shooting all the time, which means we'd be in a part of town and the camera guys would be there and I'd walk in and do something and we, we, we didn't get permits and stuff like that. But something happened on, you know, the muse, again, was on me. Um, there came a point in the film 
when it was the denouement of the, of the film, in which the character I was playing stands in front of a uh, a uh, the, the, the city hall that has steps, and stands on the steps, and a large group of people, and he's saying, we can't uh, integrate this, you know, and he's going on about the, the racism he was stirring up. And, and the day before, I had been yelling a lot, again, in, on camera. I lost my voice. Hmm. And I had, that was Thursday. Friday night was the big night. So the doctor that they got said, do not speak. Do not whisper. Do not do anything until the last moment. Your voice might come back if you completely rested. And don't whisper because that's worse. Okay. So I didn't speak, I didn't do, I didn't do anything. And, and Roger decided that what we should do is, since I'm sure you all know, you shoot this way and you shoot this way. So the first series of shots, the first part of the day, evening, would be shooting over my shoulder onto the audience. And to rest my voice, I didn't say anything. I and, and, and then Roger would say, hey, yell. So the, the people from the town, because we had broadcast on radio, if you want to be on a film, come to, come to the steps of the, and, and, and so the people, yeah, scream. And it took from 8 o'clock in the evening till about midnight. And, you know, they got bored. And finally, we were left with three people. And then they left when they reversed. So now they reverse on me and there's nobody there. And I'm screaming and yelling, race, riot, you know, kill, shoot. And then it was over. And the next day, Roger and I are walking along the main street. And the, uh, we walk by the local newspaper publishing thing. And the editor runs out. He said, oh, my God, you guys were so smart. What? He said, well, the way you handled the shooting. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, don't you realize that the hundreds of people that were there, did you see that tree that was arcing over? He said, yeah, 20 years ago, they had lynched somebody there. And I'm sure, said the editor, that many of the people that were in the audience were at that lynching. And you probably avoided being hurt or killed by not because they didn't know what you were saying. <laughs> the muse was on my shoulder. <laughs> That's a very happy accident. <laughs> I'm here to tell you about yeah. it. Yeah. So um, I'm going to ask one more question of this era, and then we're going we're gonna to flash forward to a little bit further along in your career. Okay. Is that all right? <laughs> I think it's okay. So um, we know that you had a significant role in a science fiction franchise from the years 1966 to 1969. Uh, so there's, there's a process where you're, you're a, a, a very solid, very continually working actor. Uh, that's a, it's a big gig to be leading the helm on that show. Is there, do you know why they chose you? Was there a particular performance? Was it, uh, was it uh, an audition? How did you get the role for that show? Talent. Yeah. I tell you, it was it, it was it was a little different, uh, probably unique. Um, they made a pilot <clears throat> with uh, an actor called Jeffrey Hunter. Do you remember him? Good-looking guy. 
um, uh, he had he was quite a name at oh, that. The original, the first pilot. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. The original one. The the first pilot episode. First pilot. Yeah. Exactly. So there was a pilot that Jeffrey Hunter, they made a pilot. Uh, they sold the concept to NBC. NBC's, here's money to make a pilot. They made a hour film with Jeffrey Hunter with a, with, with a science fiction thing going on. And they presented it to NBC. And then there's that moment when the gods, and in this case, NBC executives, decide to buy or not to buy or not to buy? <laughs> that is the question. And they said, no, we're not going to buy it because we don't like it. But we like the idea. Rewrite, recast, and we'll take another look at it. We'll give you the money to do it. I've never heard of that happening before or since. So they went around looking for a new captain and I was in New York doing some work, and they called me and said, would you come and see the pilot for the idea of being the captain? And I go to the pilot, and I auditioned them by looking at the pilot. I thought, my God, that's really good. Why didn't they buy it? Maybe I would. You know, they were a little ponderous, like, you know, uh, helmsman uh, turned to the starboard. You're out five years on a, in the middle of space. Wouldn't you say, hey, George, turn left? You know, <laughs> you, you know, there's a meteor coming. Come, get out of the way. So I added a little lightness, I think. Yeah, right. And then it sold. And that's the answer. And the show, um, you know, yes, thank God, right? Thank God. These little, little thank, moments in time. Thank God? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. Or whatever that entity is, I, right. you know, abstract. Right. We'll, we'll thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so the show was a failure, and it was canceled. Um, and what are you talking about? <laughs> you mean the show I did? Yeah. Yeah, the three years I did? Yeah. Well, I don't, I wouldn't. Not a failure, come on. Well, you said failure. I'm going to argue about that. I didn't say failure. You said failure. That you, came you out of your fun, mouth. You made fun of failure. my God. <laughs> you know, it was not quite a failure, but a, a fail. It was a fail. <laughs> it was a half, a, you know, half not going. It was a good show. I mean, obviously, it was a good show. It had some wonderful stories to it, uh, great uh, ideas uh, given to us in many cases by great science fiction writers. Isaac Asimov would say, well, why did you do this and that? And, and then we'd give it to the uh, television writers uh, of Star Trek. Uh, and they would use the ideas um, that Isaac or somebody else gave them. And some of the ideas for the shows were marvelous. I, I, I sometimes think of that wonderful show where the actor, well, where the character is half white and half black, mm -hmm. and the other guy is half black and half white, and, and there's animosity because they're a different color. I mean, the stupidity of that. So the stupidity of racism is not said. Look how stupid it is. It's just there. I mean, it's, it's, it's baked into the show in so many different ways, but... Um, what? It, the, the stupidity of racism is, is baked into 
uh, Star. I said it, Star Trek. Uh, so it's the show. The show we were talking about. If you haven't seen it, is called Star Trek, where they're aboard the U.S. Enterprise, USS Enterprise. But, um, but I, I, I digress. Um, the again. <laughs> well, t t try this on for size. Uh, try this on for size. Medium. Uh, <laughs> shoes uh, nine and a half, and uh, I don't even want to tell you that my size shirt. Well, I, the, the role of a, an actor, when you think about it, a, a successful actor I think about is, it quite a is, bit, is constantly getting, quote-unquote, fired every single time. You've been, you've been on a show, so it can be hugely successful, and it's over, and there's no guarantee of the next work. No. Right? So you're, you're no, that's coming. terrible, isn't it? You lose your one acting job is over, and there's no guarantee there's another job. I don't get that. Yeah. So coming off of uh, Star Trek, like, what did, you, what did you do to reinvent yourself, to, to differentiate <laughs> I yourself? I hate that to, phrase. Oh, my gosh. It's, I'm no, sorry. I'll reinvent. It's the same guy. <laughs> Just he's not working, okay? <laughs> so, so what I did, well, in those days, if you did a series, it took a period of time, sometimes years, before producers thought, the audience would like to see you in something else. So Star Trek was over, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And what I started doing was summer stock. And I would pick one of those Broadway plays that had one set and went, toured for all summer, 13 weeks or so, and was able to make uh, a partial living until I started doing other things. And... Um, uh during that period, um, that and this, you, you can shut this one down because, but it's such a fascinating thing for me. This, this, I, I, I read when, about. When this. should I shut it down? Any time you want. Before or after you've made the. Okay. okay. Stand Stop. <laughs> oh, shit. boy, you guys don't know what you're missing. It was going to be a. It was going to barnstormer. Go ahead. I think you're going to mess with me again, but I'm going to go ahead and try it. I'm not going to mess with you again. Maybe if I speak really quickly, I can get most of it out. Don't speak quickly. We, we won't understand you. Okay. <laughs> Stand-up comedy as Captain Kirk. <laughs> so I've, on I've only heard about little snippets of oh, it. Oh, lordy lord. The idea that you would do stand-up comedy, but Kirk didn't really understand what comedy was, and so that was the comedy, which is, frankly, my favorite style of comedy. Well, no, I thought it was very, very funny that uh, I was asked to do... St uh, I've done stand-up comedy, and I, you know, I think stand-up comedy is like the essence of, of art. I mean, it's, there's nothing more pure, more innovative, more requires more genius than somebody standing in front of a large audience and trying to be funny. So I thought it would be really funny because I was asked to, to, to do something at one of those uh, comic uh, theaters, you know. Uh, so I thought... Captain Kirk wants to be a stand-up comic, but he doesn't know how to do it. So he does lines like uh, Rodney Dangerfield, take my wife, please, you know. <laughs> so that's the kind of comedy Captain Kirk would do. I was on my way to the forum, you know. So I stood in front, I came out, you know, so I'm Captain Kirk, and I, take my wife, please. <laughs> and everything went that way. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It was like that silence. It was perfect. Thank you very much for being silent. 
<laughs> it was like that silence. You know, take my wife, please. Holy shit, this isn't going well at all. And, and so I was, it was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> and what was even worse was there was the guy who ran the, the comedy, it's a famous comedy theater in Los Angeles. When I came off the stage, I, I kind of slunk off, you know, and there he was there, and he looked at me. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> so, I understand that these monitors, which are now black currently, if I, if I magically say the word, start intonating that maybe we'll take some questions from the audience, uh -huh. they will populate yeah. with questions from the audience. Yeah. So if you don't mind, just because uh, I don't want to ask a, a really, well, maybe I already have, but a really awful question. Uh, I'm going to just... No, I, you've been, you're, you're really wonderful. Oh, my gosh. I mean... <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> Before we leave, I gotta build you up. <laughs> I gotta restore your ego, man. Just, just for one last. <laughs> um, that was a good kick, by the way. Thank you very you much. Just, you uh, study. Just you bear that. Study? Bear that in mind. Yeah. Just don't go too far. Really, but I'll, I won't. I won't bend down in front of you. That's for sure. Uh, all right. Well, here is a question from Lenore Brady. You have had so many amazing and... Un this is not an impersonation of Lenore Braid, I don't know. Uh, you've had so many amazing and unforgettable roles, but is there one role that you maybe wish you could... Oh, forget? No, I thought I said get. Uh, so either forget, could forget or get. I think I just told you about the one... <laughs> the stand Captain Kirk is a stand-up comic. Mm. I wish I could forget that. <laughs> but that look was perfect, man. I was just... And I can use all the help I can get. <laughs> Uh, can I tell you my, my I have 11-year-old girls. Um, can I tell you their favorite role of yours? Uh, what, their favorite role? Yeah. Is that of interest to us? Um, <laughs> maybe. I'll say yes. Um, it is uh, uh who is the grandfather of Applejack on uh, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, uh, which is, if you haven't seen the modern adaptation, not the old one, but the modern one, it's very good, very choice, it's good for families. Go, go ahead. That's it, that's it. Well, did I... Did grandpa, grandpa. Did I play grandpa? You did. <laughs> yeah, I have no recollection of playing grandpa at all. <laughs> did you see me play grandpa? I mean, I heard you. It's an animated short. How but... do you know it was me, then? Um... It's, it's under, it was either a really good impersonator and they lied in the credits or it was you. I think you did this. Okay. It, it was probably an afternoon. <laughs> or less. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I have no recollection of it, but I'm glad you liked it. Well, to answer your question, it was, uh, no, I shouldn't have, have brought it up. Uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, but you did bring it up. <laughs> We have a question uh, from, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I'll just say Guido, from Guido. Um, what do we need to do to That's get young Guido? people? Guido? Guido, a Guido. That's Guido, okay. What Guido do wants to, to know, 
should you kill me or not kill me? <laughs> Guido would like to get young people excited about science again, the oh. way that Star Trek did. So what do we do now? Because the future needs them. Well, we need all the young people working in science and learning things and, and uh, helping the world exist. Yes, we need all those young people. They need to be inspired. There's something, I have young people in my family, uh, kids in uh, last year in high school and kids starting to go to school and something's missing about the excitement of learning. I don't know where it came to from me. And perhaps uh, you have a, an opinion of where it came, uh, where it comes from for you. But the excitement of learning is perhaps more exciting than anything. I mean, anything. Because acquiring knowledge that nobody else knows or that somebody else knows that you've learned is, is enormously exciting. I read a lot. I read a lot of books. So discovering, for example, that plants, trees, communicate was like a profound astonishment to me that trees, I knew that trees released pheromones when uh, beetles, bugs attacked, but what I didn't know was that trees use the mycelium of fungi for electrochemical signals that they send to other trees, like the baby trees. So there's a mother tree and a baby, and baby trees. And it's now an established science fact. So trees, using electrochemical signals along a a, a, a wire, in effect, is the exact replica of electrochemical signals along uh, the, uh, the, 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 the brain. I'm trying to think of, the, of, of the, the wire in the brain. So electrochemical signals are sent by our brain uh, along lines exactly the same way a tree is. Does that not make you like Holy moly, right? I mean, a tree is sending, you know, dear kid, learn science, you know, to the tree. <laughs> it's, it's it, what I'm saying very clumsily is science can be so exciting in the discovery of stuff that's all around us. And all around us are things that we don't know anything about. We know nothing. And we're discovering it at an incredible rate. I, I had the opportunity to interview a, um, a uh, Nobel Prize winning scientist uh, a little while ago. And I said, why, why is there, if, if I said Manhattan Project, would you know what I mean? The Manhattan Project during World War II was every scientist available was working on getting an atomic bomb before the Nazis got it. And we achieved that. It was called the Manhattan Project. So anything that needs an intensive amount of work, people can refer to it as a Manhattan Project. Why isn't there, I asked him, a Manhattan Project talking about saving the world? I mean, we need to get carbon dioxide out of the air. There are pilot programs that do it, 
But why, why aren't scientists working on that? Getting the poisons out of the soil, out of the air, out of the water, now. And maybe by, by discovering plants and bacteria that do it, and they do, it could be done efficiently and, and, and not harmfully. It's all lying in front of us. The science is so exciting that I can't understand why some kids are wondering, I don't know what to do. Go be a scientist. <laughs> Save the world. So the acquisition of knowledge is exciting, and that's what we've got to do to the kids of today. Uh, acquaint them with the excitement of learning something. It's, I, I absolutely adore your passion on this subject. I mean, it, it makes me think about one of the hurdles is uh, the, the fact that we don't really respect the teaching profession and we pay That's peanuts. That's huge. Right? And so another... And, that's a tangible thing that could be done to spur on enthusiasm. Like, I had teachers when I was growing up that got me excited about science. I, right. I, I, I studied engineering, but it's not about me. Um, uh, did you have you teachers? You finally have realized that. <laughs> I was going to pivot over to you now, but uh, do, uh, did you have teachers that, like, how did this love of science get yeah, stirred no, up? No, I in don't you? know. And I, did, I, I don't remember. All I remember is I did something wrong. I don't remember what it was. Two or three students of that class did something wrong. And in those days, you remember I was in Quebec, very strict Catholic uh, upbringing for most people. And so, you know, you've heard stories of the nuns hitting you over the knuckles with a... Well, I wasn't in a, a Catholic school, but the 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 punishment was very uh was right there what you had to do was hold your hand out and the male teacher would use a foot long foot and a half long rubber strap and strap your hands so you get a dozen straps and the hand would swell up it'd be red and he did that to a couple of guys me and we left school we left the building uh you know three four o'clock in the afternoon and we said Let's burn his car. <laughs> we never did. We couldn't find a car. But we were so angry. We were so angry at being punished like that. That was a bad teacher. Yes. What you needed it was a teacher to incite anything. Language. Look at this gentleman here. How, look at the way he's talking with his hands. My granddaughter is learning sign language at a school, and she's loving it. But it's another language. It's a language. Learning language, learning to communicate is exciting. Look at him. He's excited. It's... <laughs> <laughs> So that's a huge thing we've got to do in this country, absolutely. Okay, so I have one question. I did warn you that uh, I might wedge this in, and there wasn't really a way. Although earlier tonight, I did hear not one but two uh, cell phones go off uh, in the auditorium. Here? here? Yeah, while we were trying to have a very serious-minded conversation, I was distracted twice by two people. Right, well, but what was happening was... Mm -hmm. They were getting a call back saying, is Shatner really there? 
I, I just want to pose like a hypothetical question. Let's say, let's say you're maybe like watching a movie, for example, and then somebody around you is is talking or or texting. What is what is your reaction to that, and and what would you do in that instance? What would I do to, to make it quiet? Mm-hmm. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> What's wrong with that? No, it's... it's you know, I, I understand the word fuck is li- liable to be, uh, you know, uh, 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 ugly to you. But it's such a juicy word. <laughs> if it's not overused, shut the fuck up will stop somebody from talking, right? Watch this. <laughs> shut the fuck up! <laughs> See? What it else did, you want to know? It didn't work, man. He just repeated the same word right back at you. It escalated. It escalated. I <laughs> no, didn't you... see the gesture, but it looked like that, didn't it? <laughs> What's the gesture? Teach us the gesture for fuck. No guts. <laughs> um. <laughs> He's whispering something, right? <laughs> you, you might notice that I only took a couple questions off of the big board here, uh, and that is because there were a number of questions that came in, uh, variations on a theme, and it's about a recent experience in your life where you know, you've been associated with, uh, with science and science fiction and space travel for much of your career, um, but you actually got the, the chance to go up into space. I did. And so I, did. I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Well... It was a very profound experience. I didn't know it was going to be. I thought, you know, originally when they asked me. Well, well I went to, um, to Seattle uh, to meet uh, with Jeff Bezos and uh, uh, to suggest that I should go up in his Blue Origin, be the first one up. And uh, they, oh, no, we'll consider it. It was like trying to sell a show. Yeah, okay, well... We'll get, we'll get back to you, and they never get back. So COVID hit, and when they got back to us, they had decided that Jeff Bezos, the owner, the, the big man at, uh, at uh, Blue Origin, was uh, going to go up first with his brother and, uh, and uh, a lady astronaut who didn't, hadn't gone up, and a young man. I don't know how they reached that thing, but, uh, but uh, they, they didn't want me. <laughs> and uh, so the gentleman, uh, Jason Ehrlich, who was a uh, producer, uh, was with me. He said, well, would you go up in the second one? I'm not going to go up in the second one. <laughs> it's like getting the vice president when you want the president. You know, I'm not going to go up. But then I, my book, the theme of Boldly Go, which is the name of the book that's out there now, uh, is, you know, say yes to life. Say yes to new adventures, new loves, new ideas, new, you know, s- blue suit. Say yes to a blue suit. <laughs> so I thought, that's ridiculous. 
if they ask me, I'll go. And they asked me to go, and so I did. And they asked me to go uh, be there on a Monday. Uh, and everybody else was coming in on a Tuesday. And I thought, why am I, why am I here on a Monday? I don't know. Monday, and everybody's like, why am I? so I'm there on a Monday, and I'm moseying around, and why am I here? And they said, all right, let's get into the uh, electric uh, truck and go out to the gantry and take a look at the gantry. All right, let's take a look at the they'll go to the gantry, and then let's go up the top of the gantry. So, I don't, what, what? It's at 4,000 feet, the desert, it's, at 4, 000, it's like Denver. You know, when you get into Denver, it's already, <laughs> so you know, 4,000 feet, it's almost 5,000 feet. So, well, I don't want to go up, with that. all right, so we go up, and I go up three flights, <gasps> and, I'm, and then I look, hello, let's wait a moment, I will look at the scenery, and I wait a moment, and I go up another three flights, where are you going? <laughs> you need not kneel in front of me. Arise. <laughs> and walk out. <laughs> so I finally get to the 11th floor of that gantry, and, I, and I'm looking, and I get to the top, and there's this building the size of this stage. And I, the door is open. The door is 12 inches thick. And I realize it's a cement 12-inch thick. What's that doing there? And they said, well, and, and I saw cylinders of air and, and wires that I'm sure led down. I said, well, what is all that? They said, well, it's in case something goes wrong. <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, no, it's okay. And, and then we went, and we went back to the, to the headquarters. And I realized why I was there a day early. They wanted to see if the old guy could get up to the top of the thing. <laughs> and I did. I got up there. <laughs> so now, so now we, we rehearse, practice, getting in and out of the, the prone seat. The seat is like this, okay? Because we're going to have four Gs, four gravitational forces on us going up, and I think about seven coming down. I mean, you could hurt yourself on seven Gs. <laughs> so we practice and practice and practice, five uh, in weightlessness. You're going to be weightless. You've got to get in, left, right, or left first, and then right, and then uh, the waist, and then there was the crotch strap. Now, I've driven a lot of fast cars. I know about a seven-point harness. And you get right into it. But if you're like this, and you're trying to find the hole, you can't. Okay? So it's impossibility. Now, there's a lady here, Audrey, who tried to instruct me on how to get the crotch strap in. I never could it. I didn't do it on launch, okay? She did. They all did. Everybody did. Chris and... So, we're now ready to go up. And uh, this is the countdown. Uh, T minus 30. We're down. All right, we're going to withdraw the gantry. Anybody who wants to get off should get off now. <laughs> God's truth. I'm thinking, oh, Okay, I'm going. And then I think, I'm Captain Kirk, I can't. <laughs> so 
So I stay. And now I look down and I see some effluence coming out of the rock. I said, what's that? They said, it's hydrogen. Hydrogen. Hindenburg. <laughs> Do you remember the footage of the Hindenburg? The lighter than air airship, 300 foot long. Uh, 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 sails into New Jersey. They tie it off. We now know that uh, 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 electricity, uh, um, the static electricity goes up the thing and it went along the aluminized body of the Hindenburg and sparked on some hydrogen that was leaking over there. The thing explodes, and, the, and there's footage that everybody, most people have seen, little people running from this giant thing. And the announcer, who's there saying, well, you know, there's a st spaceship coming in, or what, goes, oh, my God, the humanity of it, and he's crying. On, and I'm thinking, that's hydrogen. <laughs> They've got hydrogen in this thing. We take off. And we go up. And we're in weightlessness. Now, should I get off? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe. I'm going to spend another five minutes here, guys. <laughs> okay. So there's cameras in the spaceship pointing this way, and astronauts are over there. I had seen footage of Jeff Bezos in. Uh, weightlessness. He's on his belly, his feet akimbo, okay? And the kid is throwing candies at his asshole. <laughs> I knew that I was not going to spend weightlessness like that. <laughs> so when we got into weightlessness, I made my way to the window. And I looked out the window, and for some reason I was looking back, and I could see the wake of the spaceship going through the air. I've never heard anybody discuss the fact that you could see a wake like a submarine underwater. It was incredible. And then I looked up, and I saw the blackness of space. Now, when I say blackness, I mean that blackness you get when you're in a cave and they close the door, and you don't dare move because the blackness is so palpable. That's what I saw in space. I, I am a student of space. I know the, the Hubble and the Webb and the galaxies. and the, I know a, a, a lot, as much as anybody here, any amateur here. I know a lot of that stuff. None of that was there in the blackness. It was black. It was death. <laughs> and that there, the beige, the white, the blue, was life. And then I felt this sadness. I don't know, didn't know what it was. And I scrambled back after weightlessness and made my way down. And I found myself crying on camera down when we had landed. And I'm crying. I'm like, what am I crying about? Why am I crying? And I go and sit down someplace to gather my thoughts, and I realize I'm feeling grief. Well, what am I feeling grief about? Well, I've been an ecologist for a long time, for many, many years, decades. I, I knew, because of books that I had read and 
people, authorities that I had talked to, what was coming this way. But there were a lot of people who didn't want to look at global warming coming this way. But I knew about it. And I knew that it was gathering steam. And I knew that even during the time I was up there, there were entities going extinct. Think of how sad this is. Life probably began about 13, uh, 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 3 billion, 3.8 billion years ago the, on Earth. 3.8 billion years while life evolved, clinging to life. The imperative of life is I want to live, I'm going to live. Those cedar trees clinging to cliffs, the, the, the slime, slime, making its way through a maze and reaching for the sun, slime. Insects are going, entities that we don't know that they existed have ceased to exist, and we don't even though they were there. How sad is that, that this beautiful, sacred thing called life has evolved and things disappeared in life and we didn't know that they were there. How sad that is. That was my grief. I did, I entertained at Kennedy Center. We wrote a song for that very thing called So Fragile, So Blue. We're making a... a uh, music video of it in my fantasy. It's a rallying cry, because intertwined in So Fragile, So Blue are the lyrics, what can we do? And the orchestra, 70 pieces playing behind me, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And the music stops. The people leapt out of the, their seats and applauded. What can we do? That's the question I leave with you all. Thank you very much.